All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Welcome to episode 15 of the DFO Rundown Podcast. I'm Jason Greger. Once again, Frank Saravalli joins me as uh, things are flying by. Frank, there's so much going on. We're, uh, we're just basically two weeks away two weeks. from the NHL trade deadline. Uh, let's get to the big story. The, and unfortunately, it's an injury, but uh, the loss for Aaron Ekblad and the Florida Panthers. Ekblad had been playing unreal. The Panthers were very good. They just lost their best defenseman. That's crushing. Yeah, that's a grisly injury too. I, just watching it, it makes me sick to my stomach. Um, you know, it's a tough one. Out extensive period of time, according to Joel Quenville, and there's just there's no way to replace him. And I, I get that the Panthers are going to probably look around here a little bit to see what they might be able to add, but I think they're in a really tough spot at the deadline because on the one hand, you're trying to prove to your your top guns on your team, your Barkovs and your Hubertos, and, and also your market as well, that you're invested in winning, that you've got this great opportunity. But on the other hand, I think they're in a clear rung down from, and that was with Ekblad on the ice, from Carolina and Tampa in that division. So do you really go and load up at the deadline if you can, when you know that, you know, at least in my book, it's, un, it's unlikely that they beat one or both of those teams in a seven game series. So I don't know what Bill Zito does, but I think they're in a tough spot. So I want to ask you for like jockmkt.com. Are who in 
in uh, Florida, stock is going to have to rise here on the blue line. For people who don't know, jockmkt.com, they combine uh, fantasy sports like the stock market. You buy the value of the player. So if there was someone, they were going to go on Florida right now on their blue line. Like, do you see anybody who's capable of stepping up and becoming even a bigger part of that back end? Yeah, Mackenzie Weger has really stepped up this year for this team. Um, he's gotten significantly better, and it's not just – a look at his point production. He's closing in on a career high season, even in a shortened year. It's, he just looks like a totally different player confidence wise. And, and the other player I think we have to mention is Keith Yandel, right? Uh, you know, what an odd, weird year it's been for Keith Yandel and the Panthers. I, I, I'm probably going to have to eat my shoe at some point based off of what I said in, in some earlier podcasts about this group being, um, you know, not having it. They, they definitely have, you know, when I watch the Panthers and I, I was thinking about this and talking about it over the weekend with someone, they, the Panthers this year feel like the Vegas golden Knights in their expansion year. Does that make any sense to you? I see what you're saying. Yeah. They're kind of a group that no one expected and they've come on and they've been way better. And, and the whole year we were counting and saying, this is, they're going to fall off. Now they're going to fall off. Now at some point they're coming back to earth and they just haven't yet. And I, I think part of it is, and Vegas had this golden misfits thing going on. I think part of it is there was definitely some friction between the Panthers and management at the beginning of the year before training camp. And a lot of it revolved around Keith Yandel and his supposed healthy scratch that was coming that never did. And I wonder if that group sort of banded together as a team based off of how that very beginning of the season and training camp played out. Oh, sometimes, hey, you know what? Uh, it can unify the group when you don't like, necessarily like your boss, for sure. Now, let's stay in the central, Frank, because the Nashville Predators are suddenly tied with Chicago. Uh, Dallas is still under 500, but uh, they've got, I think, four games in hand, so they're still a little bit within striking distance. But then Columbus, they just lost back-to-back -back games to Detroit. Like, what's going on in the central? Yeah, it's it's been fascinating. I, I still, you know, I know that the Preds have played really well these last number of games, Look at their save percentage, though, 96% almost over these last five games. And I, I'm still not sold. I know you said that Nashville has the most favorable schedule. I, I, I still give, give it a couple weeks on Dallas. Trust me, just give it a couple weeks. And the Preds, though, now that they're in this position, major surgery required on the trade bait board, no? Like, I mean, yeah. They're, they're in the mix, and I had reported previously that in, in the discussions that they were having with Toronto about Mikhail Granlin, that they were pulling back their assets. They weren't necessarily saying we're not trading. It's just that we feel like we're in the mix and we want to see how far we can go here. And now that they've come from even further back to where they are now, I, I think you'd have to take those Columbus players, David Savard, you know, by the time Wednesday hits and we've got our new trade bait board, David Savard is going to be number one. He has to be. You have to take him above Matias Ekholm. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, especially after uh, tough losses for the Blue Jackets. Uh, to Detroit, I mean, to... what a lost weekend. Two games yeah. to Detroit, oh, come on. Brutal for them. And it just shows you, you in, in this schedule, anybody can win at any time. And hey, uh, quickly though, uh, let's get, I want to get your thoughts on Ovi. Ovi is back to Machine. being Alex Ovechkin. Yeah. He, he's been ridiculous. And, and that launches me into, frankly speaking, by the way, as he closes in on the Rocket Richard race with Austin Matthews, 11 goals in his last 11 games. He's been insane. But frankly speaking for me, and I'll keep it really short, is 
next time Austin Matthews starts ridiculously hot, like he did this year, can we never talk about goal a game possibilities or can he get to 56 goals in 56 games? I said it then I'm saying it now. It was ridiculous to even think about. And I know that he's had the wrist injury. He finally got back on the board in overtime against the Oilers on Saturday, but still that was insane to ever think about, let alone talk about on TV for a significant period of time to devote any sort of attention to that, that, that it'll never happen. So, so you're saying that, that Ovi's 11 goals in 11 games is not sustainable? Well, so he's the one guy that has the ability yeah. for long stretches. He, yeah. he, he scored 48 or 49 in a 56-game stretch in his career. He's done it. He at least has the track record. Yeah. Austin Matthews isn't close, and, and no one else has been close in the last almost decade. So to think that he was going to be at a goal a game pace this year, it's still impressive what he's done. I'm not taking anything away from 22 and 31 now, but come on, that was insane to think about. Frank, uh, the NHL also uh, came out. They had to redo their schedule. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens, uh, they're not playing tonight. They'll start tomorrow. So that means they're going to play 25 games in 43 days. Uh, the Boston Bruins had their schedules all, you know, slid in there. As well, you know, Edmonton, Montreal make up their games, but it doesn't really hurt Edmonton. It's two extra games at the end of the season. Yep. Um, they'll get a, a Montreal team that hasn't practiced very much and hasn't played in 10 days uh, tomorrow night as, as the first of those makeups. Um, what do you make of this for the Habs? Like 25 games in 43 days. Like they're in a good position to make the playoffs. Are they going to have anything left come playoff time? You know, I'm fascinated to see it because I was actually kind of thinking that this, what is it? They're going to end up with a week off or eight or nine days off, something like that. How beneficial could that be in the early going of this, you know, jumping back into it? Of course, by the end of it, they're going to be dead tired, but at the beginning, they, they could be pretty refreshed, you know, getting some time off that very few teams have had over these last number of weeks. Yeah, maybe I saw Edmonton's first period after a week off and they practiced and their first period against Toronto. It was funny, like for any, it looked like a preseason game for them. They missed passes and they got better in the second uh, before they choked in well, the third period. But look, I, look at I look the at number Montreal. of teams. Yeah. A number of teams records coming back from a long COVID layoff. They've been horrendous since the yeah. flyers have been bad. The Sabres, you, you saw Eric Stahl talk about it. They never got themselves back together. Um, you know, I, the numbers don't dictate that they're likely to find success in the beginning, but I would have to imagine for some team at some point, the rest will be beneficial. And Ken Hitchcock's going to join us right away. The uh, one of the winningest coaches in NHL history He's living on the West coast. So let's go to the West quickly. Uh, Arizona is now tied with the St. Louis blues. Arizona has a much easier schedule. The blues play Vegas and Colorado a lot down the stretch. What do you make of the Coyotes? They had a lot of guys who were on the trade bait board. What do you think they're going to do? And what do you think the Blues are going to do? Well, I still think the Coyotes are open to doing anything. Um, you know, they're a true wild card out there in the West. And, you know, I, I think it could be involving their goaltender in Darcy Kemper once he gets healthy. I think it could be with some of the guys in their back end. Joel Merson has been hurt, but he was a guy that I think people were interested in. I, I find it very hard to believe that Goligoski is not traded. Uh, then there was seemed to be some discussion about Connor Garland up front. I don't know why he would make any sense to move, even though he's due a big raise. You'd think a guy who's been produ producing almost at a point per game clip, in, you know, and an RFA, a homegrown guy is one that you'd want to keep, but uh, they're a wild card. Um, I, you know, I still think the blues are going to figure it out. They've had a ton of injuries, like, like more, way more than most. And 
there is something off about that team. They've been off all year. Mike Hoffman, healthy scratch last game. Uh, he hasn't been a seamless fit, but I still think once they get all their pieces together, that they'll find a way to, to dig in and compete. The, the Coyotes and Rick Tockett has done an unbelievable job. Like, honestly, he should be in the mix for coach of the year. And, and by the way, speaking of pending UFAs, he's going to be a fascinating one to watch because I think some teams would fire their coach and find a way to hire Rick Tockett if he makes it to market this summer. But, you know, I, I still give the Blues a leg up on that spot. And, and if you're the Coyotes, again, are, you're not adding at the deadline. If anything, you're just going in neutral and you're hoping that you can compete. But does anyone really think the Coyotes are beating some of those teams ahead of them in a seven-game series? That's a tough spot. Uh, no question. you got to weigh the option of just making the playoffs to, to appease your fan base in a COVID year. It'll be fascinating to watch uh, over the next two weeks. Leading, I was going to say what fan base, but hey, like, all right. Hey, hey, hey now, hey now. There's a few of them for sure. Uh, let's get to our uh, get big guest today, Ken Hitchcock. Our next guest needs little by way of introduction. This hockey lifer is sixth all time on the NHL's games coach list and better yet, fourth all time on the wins list. His name is etched on the Stanley Cup with the 1999 Dallas Stars. Please welcome to the DFO rundown, Ken Hitchcock. Hitch, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a lot of fun listening and watching you guys. So let's start with what are you up to right now? Where are you and, and what are you getting into? Uh, I live in Palm Springs and Kelowna. I kind of split time. Um, I've, I've, uh, the last uh, year and a half, I've worked uh, a lot with the Bakersfield team, uh, mostly with the coaching staff, and we're in constant contact. I'm I'm uh, we're talking practice plans and and overviews of, of the week, the, the week that just got played. Uh, and I work with uh, Jay and his staff a, a lot. And I really, really enjoy that part. I spent some time with Brad Lauer and his staff, and I did a lot of work with them uh, when I when uh, before COVID hit. And then uh, pretty much uh, I'm in contact with Ken, uh, I would say five, six times a week and then. We're in constant contact when the games are on. So I, I, I try to watch uh, uh, three games a day. Um, I watch uh, two live and then uh, tape one and then watch it early in the morning when I get up. And so I, I, I'm in, I've got a really good, I think, evaluation and handle on what the individual players are that might be up for trade or might be available or look, looking forward to what they are. And then I'm, I'm able to watch our team play pretty much every game. So three games a day. That's what I was going to ask you. you. You can't really turn it off, can you? Not, not real. Not me. Like some guys can. I, I can't. Now I've changed a lot. I don't listen to the volume. So anybody that's on play by play, I don't even know who they are. And I, but I, I, I want to watch teams that are playing well, Frank, and I want to know why they're playing well and 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 uh, what elements in their game are there, so that I'm constantly learning. And the thing that really helps me stay current right now is that uh, I'm able to participate in the practice plans with the American league team. So those, those plans are sent to me. Um, their game plans are sent to me. So I'm in, I feel like I'm up to date with what's going on uh, systems changing and stuff going on. And then when I, when I hone in on a team that I think is playing really well um, or quite frankly, a team that's playing poorly um I want to know why, and I take notes on it, and then uh, I enjoy that part of it. 
Ken, as you watch all the games this year and everybody's playing only in their division, have you noticed from a coaching perspective, are our tactics different? Because, you know, you, you expect there's only six or seven teams depending on what division you're in that you're playing against have coaches been able to zone in more on specific things because you only really have to worry about a small group of opposing teams. Uh, you know what, Jason, I think what's really evident right now is that uh, the teams are, the games come so quickly, the teams can't afford to um, game plan that much. They've got to just plan for their own energy level. So I think what you're seeing is, the teams are trying to forge their own identity, not worry about the opposition. And in talking to the coaches around the NHL, they don't have time to game plan for different opponents and stuff like that. They know them already. They've, they've played them multiple times already. So there's, there's no planning except for your own plan and get your own game up and running, get it in order so that you can, you can put that out there as, as, as often and as quickly as you can. Because what happens right now, winning and losing momentum is 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 pretty uh, evident right now. And if your game isn't on top, uh, you can go on a swoon, and you can be, you can go from the top to the bottom real quick here, especially in those uh, first four spots, um, because you don't have your game in order, and you're playing three four games a week. So it's it's tough. Uh, I've talked to a lot of guys and. They found they find that this year is the toughest year they've ever had as coaches. Uh, trying to keep the enthusiasm level up, trying to keep the energy up, uh, trying to help the younger guys that aren't aren't married with isolation issues and stuff like that. So, um, but I think the game, the teams that have their game in order, they can force that game on the opposition no matter who they play. So let's go back a little bit now, Ken, into to your coaching career, because you're, you're very unique in the fact you didn't play a, a super high level of hockey at all. And, and a lot of hockey coaches, either former NHLers or AHLers or junior stars, potentially, you weren't that, but you know, you, you became one of the best coaches ever. Take us through that path, Ken, for, for maybe people out that are like, damn, like I love hockey, but I'm not a good player enough to, to get a coaching job. So couldn't, like, could there be another Ken Hitchcock in today's game? And if so, where do you get started for those who aren't necessarily high-level players? You know, for me, Jason, I, when, I did, when I decided to get into coaching, um, I made the decision that I wasn't the smartest guy in the room and I need to learn. And that's when I really latched on to the U of A Golden Bears. And I, I found that um, being able to hang around Claire Drake and Billy Moores, being able to observe practices, being able to come to games, being able to sit in the coach's room before and after games was really valuable for me. And I, I've been on this learning journey since, and, and I, I want to tap into anybody that I think that can make me a better coach. And it's not just hockey. It's talking to, I've got close friends in the NFL, close friends in major league baseball. Um, I, I, I want to tap into anybody uh, and really close friends in the military. Uh, I want to tap into anybody that can help me become a better coach. And uh, from a, from a technical and team building aspect, I, I, I couldn't have got a better mentor than Claire Gray and Claire, Claire showed me what it was like uh, before you even could think about winning, how you had to build your team and what it, what elements had to be in place to build your team properly and keep them together. And, and I, you know, when I was working for a living and coaching midget hockey in Sherwood Park, I was at least at least four times a week 
at the university, either watching practices or watching games. And uh, I, I used to, for, for 10 or 11 years, I used to take lunch breaks and scoot and, and take them all around the, uh, when the bears were practicing and I had their schedule and I'd go and watch them practice and Claire and Billy were good enough to give me their practice plans and stuff like that. So I, I, I felt like I was on this learning journey and I didn't want to ever get off. And it's the same way, quite frankly, I feel now it's, and it's why I love watching hockey even today is because I feel like I can learn. And then I feel like now it's my turn to pass it on to, to other coaches. So Ken, you've been getting that question for 30, 40 years now. Does like, does it bother you that, that people, you know, I don't know, not, I don't want to say think that way, but, still ask. I mean, your, your credentials are bona fide. Um, but it's almost like there's an asterisk next to that. Yeah. Because I, I came up, uh, really from, uh, from the underground or from the ground floor. And I, 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 I get that, but to me, I, I had a passion for coaching, uh, at a very young age and I've never lost the passion and, and it wasn't so much a passion for coaching as a passion for learning. And I think anybody, it's harder now. It'd be a lot harder now, but because uh, I went through every level. I went from midget hockey to the NHL and I passed every level. I didn't skip anything. And that, that, that's a grind. That takes a lot of years to, to be able to dedicate yourself to that. But I, I, I think my situation is very unique. I'm really proud of the fact that I survived in the National Hockey League and was able to stay so long. Uh, but I also feel like, that, Frank, I had got a really strong obligation. On a weekly basis, I probably talked to 12 to 15 coaches at various disciplines, and, and not many in the NHL, quite frankly. Um, but I'm on, I'm getting calls or texts, or we're going over stuff with coaches at the university levels, at, the, at major junior levels, at, at the NC2A levels. Um, uh, I'm in contact with these guys and I've made myself available because I feel like I owe those guys the same opportunity that I was given by, by Billy and uh, by Claire. Good on you for that. Um, I wanted to ask how much things have changed. You know, when you first started uh, at the NHL level for coaches, it was maybe 90 or 95% practice plans, X's and O's game plans. And now it just seems like there's such a shift. You mentioned just previously, you know, the younger guys and dealing with isolation. How much has a coach's job changed to managing personalities and finding what motivates these players? And it, how different was it for you in your, your last stint? Uh, I really enjoyed it in Edmonton. I, 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 we, we ran into, we weren't deep and we knew that. And when we were in the playoff uh, grouping um, and we, we lost a couple of defensemen. Uh, we knew we were in trouble, but I really enjoyed it. And the reason I enjoyed it is um, I had spent some time learning on what that generation needed. And what's really changed, Frank, for me, it's, it's in a, and this is the simplest way I can put it, is when I started coaching, you told the players what to do. And you stayed on that, and, and they – they, they, for the most cases, when I coached, they bought into that. And then you ended up doing uh, you, the teacher part came out. You, you told them what to do and how to do it. And now the third part is what has to take place now. And that is they need to know where they're going and you need to supply the end game 
before you even get going if you expect to have a buy-in. If you don't supply the end game, what's in it for them, what the benefits are, and explain to them exactly where this is going to take them, they won't buy in. And if you can't do that, you're going to have a really difficult time coaching this generation. And that's what I found out um, when I was in Edmonton. When I, and I, I learned a lot working with military people on how they explained it to their warfighters on their tasks and their missions and explained the end game to them, good and bad. And they were a lot of the same age as hockey players. And I really enjoyed putting that aspect into place in Edmonton. And um, I think that's necessary at every age now uh, when you're working in hockey is you need to fully explain the end game before you can even expect the buy-in. Jason, if I could ask one more, just a follow-up. Hitch, do you feel like when you were explaining that, that you had gotten through to these guys? Or do you feel like, you know, if you could do it a little bit differently, you might? Um, I, I think you, when you explained it, um, you felt like you, you would, you'd struck a chord that made sense to them. But I, you have to be an unbelievable listener in this generation of hockey players because they have very strong opinions and there's a lot of tags on them individually. You know, the players have individual coaches, individual trainers, individual nutritionists, psychologists, and there's a lot of voices in their ears. And when they start to talk to you, you have to be able to listen and let that play out because if you don't, if you shut that out, then they won't buy into what you want them to do. And you got to really be able to listen to them because they're not, they're not a single entity like they were, you know, they, when everything was centered around the hockey club, it was the, the, the training staff trained, they were trained them only. The strength coach was their only strength coach. That's not the same anymore. So you've got, they've got different opinions that have been forged by different conversations long before you get them. And you have to be, when you supply the end game to them, you better be prepared to listen to their questions and answer them properly, or you're not going to get any semblance of a buy-in. Ken, you are one of the few guys with an NHL coaching resume who, who can relate to coaching young players. You, Cause you, you went up at every level, right? You didn't just coach pros. You know, you were, you were helping out a girls team in the, in the early eighties when, you know, there was barely any girls teams for goodness sake. So for, for a lot of our amateur coaches, right. Who, who are passionate about the game, what, what advice would you give to young coaches at like, you know, you 11, you nine, you 13, whatever it is, what's maybe one of the mistakes coaches make at that young level that they shouldn't be making? Well, for me, every young level, every, every able level, uh, really under 17 years of age, you need to be a teacher. And, and what I learned over time is if I couldn't teach the skill, I found people that would come in and be able to do that. I couldn't teach power skating. I didn't have the technique. So I brought people in every year I was in Sherwood Park. We brought people in to teach power skating. So you, you have a lot of avenues open to you as a coach, but if you're limited in some areas, if you feel like you're, you don't understand penalty killing or power play or the concepts of, uh, of uh, spatial relationships on the ice, you've got to find people that can do that stuff and bring them in and, 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 and get them to help you because you can't limit yourself so you limit the player's growth. And to me, 
If you want your players to become better players and develop, you've got to supply them with the information they need. And if it's not there within your resources, then you've got to go out and seek it and find it. And that's, that's what I did. I found people, if I couldn't do it or I couldn't get it done, I found people that would come in and help me and get it done that way. Now let, let's go to your career and let's kind of go back to your day with the Blazers. You know, that's really where a, a lot of your, your success, you kind of start getting on the radar a little bit. I want to talk about the, you know, 1986-87 season. As a head coach, Rob Brown had the greatest year in WHL history at 212 points. It's ridiculous what he did that year. As a coach, and then he got hurt, unfortunately, and missed, I think, six games in the playoffs for you guys, that or seven even for you guys that year. Um, when you're coaching a guy who is clearly that much better than everyone offensively at that time, how did you challenge him to, you know, to keep getting better? Jason, Rob Brown taught me more about dealing with elite athletes than I've ever learned in my life. Because the way he played, when I started coaching, I came from a structured environment because what I observed was, was the university environment and midget hockey. And Rob Brown really bothered me as a, as a coach. And he, <laughs> he drove me crazy. And he, he was, uh, he was an, an absolute beast in the big games. But when it was just a game on a Wednesday night, he used to drive me crazy. And so I was, I would be complaining about some of his things. He was a gifted player. He was like Gretzky was in junior hockey. And I was sitting down with, with the captains and I said, Brownie this, Brownie that. And they, and they stopped me and they said, what's your problem, Hitch? If he doesn't bother us, why should he bother you? And he sure as heck doesn't bother us. And it kind of was the, the wake-up call in learning to deal with those guys. And I ha I've had guys like Medano and, and Zuboff and various players uh, uh, it, throughout my career in the NHL. And I really learned over time that if, he, if his play doesn't bother the players, then it shouldn't bother the coach. But the other thing that I learned over time is when you have skilled players who are top end skilled players, and they, in a lot of cases, they have weaknesses too. If you focus on their weaknesses, they stop using their strengths. And so I learned over time um, uh, in real quick order, and it was working with guys like Rob Brown that taught me that focus and get them to do what they do well and really drill down on that. And then understand that the weaknesses are long-term. They might take four months. They might take a year to, to change. But if you focus on the weaknesses, then what they do well, they'll stop doing. Do you think we've seen a little bit of that with McDavid and Dreisaitl? You know, some of what you worked on with them maybe a couple years ago that we're seeing the fruits of that a little bit more this year? With Leon, yes. Um, Connor's... Uh, Connor's such a uh, pure player. Like he's, he's everything you want in a player is in one package. Um, he was well on his way. Um, for me, Leon, I'm, I'm really, I, I've got a great relationship with both guys and I'm really proud of the fact that, that Leon, Leon bought into the 200 foot game after we had some, some meetings and some talks about it. He just changed. He just, he just took it upon himself. He didn't need a lot of coaching after we went through the, 
what I thought would make him a special player. He just changed right away. And, and you could see it during the season that, that he had with, when I was there, that he, he just, uh, he, he completely adapted to what it took to be a great 200 foot player. And, and for me, quite frankly, he's the best 200 foot player in the league right now. And, you know, the two of them together are dynamic. I love watching them when they play together, but Leon for me is the best 200 foot player in the national hockey league because he, if you look at him in important zones, he, he gets his team to start with the puck every time. And then he's down low. He, he's, he's a tireless guy. He doesn't get tired during the shift. There's no drop-off during the shift. And I, I think he's a really, really unique guy. How do, you, how do you look at the Oilers and where they sit this season? It's almost like, you know, when I watch this group, it, it seems like sometimes a tale of two teams. Like, even when you look at their record this year, they're seven, nine, and one against teams heading to the playoffs and 13 and five. They've crushed the teams below them. How do they get to that next level to compete a little bit better with the teams that are above them? Well, for me, Frank, right now, they're playing as good as anybody team game wise. Their numbers around the puck, uh, there's their puck support in what I call critical ice. Their, their puck support when the play is stopped, whether it's net front, corners, whatever, is as good as anybody in the National Hockey League. To me, there's about five teams that are playing at that level, puck support-wise, at the top of the league, and the Oilers are one of them. Their team game has improved dramatically. One of the things that it takes to win in the National Hockey League, at the end of the day, are what I call the 1-4-9 ratio. A goalie, four defensemen, and nine forwards. And that, that wins in the playoffs, that wins Stanley Cup, Cups. And that's where the Oilers, ha we have to grow. We've got to get to the point where our three lines can control the hockey game. Because if you look at this Northern Division right now, that's, that's what Toronto has and that's what Winnipeg has. And we've got to get that growth going to where we can not worry about sending out any, any of the top three lines and, and that's why, for me, our team game is as good as it's been right now. It's really good. But individual growth of players um, or, or whether a guy like, like Cassian can get back up to speed, who, who looks like he's really coming on now, whether tourists can get back into and, and get back up to speed, that's going to be a big determining factor to how we do in the playoffs, in my opinion, because – that you, you're going to need nine forwards, and they all got to play against anybody. You look at Tampa when they when they uh, when they made the change and brought Goodrow and 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 Coleman in. That gave them the three lines that could play against anybody, and that's what wins in the end. And that's where we got to get our growth to right now. Hitch, uh, you coach Darnell Nurse in Edmonton for a bit. Now you watch you. I, I don't know if I can recall a defenseman who who has taken his overall game to such an improvement in all his levels. Uh, he's really eliminated the, you know, the major errors in his own zone. He, he's a, he's, he, he gets the puck off his stick quicker than most forwards do on the rush now. And that's why he's got 11 goals. What, as a coach, what have you seen in the emergence of nurses overall game that's allowed Edmonton to, to have at least for this season, anyway, a legit number one defenseman. Well, I told Kenny this, uh, I, I feel like Darnell is petrol and, uh, Petrangelo and Darnell have the same qualities. Um, do they make a few mistakes? Yes. But the, the good stuff they do far outweighs anything they do mistake-wise. 
And they are, they're, they're two players that never get tired on the ice. Darnell never gets tired. He never has a drop off in energy. Uh, he can play 30 minutes a night and still be the fastest player on the back end at the end of the night. And I think um, as, as he's getting, as maturity's coming into his game, the mistakes are becoming fewer and fewer uh, every game. And the other thing is that he's, he's able to pace himself and know when to jump and know when to hang back. So he's got, he's got his vision has really increased in understanding where he should be on the ice, uh, which comes with maturity. But the engine, the engine that he has, a competitive engine, is incredible. And it's a lot like Petro in that he just doesn't get tired. He makes strong plays when he's under pressure. And uh, I think what you're seeing is the emergence of a true number one defenseman. Hitch, I want to go back a little bit. We've had a lot of your former players uh, you know, write articles, talk about you know, if you, you were a great coach, but you were also at time a guy who would really get on certain players. You know, Brennan Morrow wrote a pretty funny story about you. Can can you talk about your relationship specifically with those Dallas Stars teams? And, and you know what? Uh, when you have the respect of your players, that's all that matters. Coaches and players don't have to be best buddy, but you had an ability to just be on guys on the bench. And then the next day you'd be like, hey, uh, how's it going? So where how did you create that personality? And was there any players as buttons you like to push? I don't know so much as buttons I'd like to push, Jason. You, you know, that's the one regret probably I have as a coach is that when I coach a team, I, I believe the team can do superhuman things. I believe my players are special, and I've always believed that. But I think sometimes as a coach, you don't tell them that. And I, I, I drove players hard that I really believed in. And I, 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 I probably didn't say that enough to them, but – uh, I pushed players that I thought had, had a, a special ability to, to really um, impact the hockey game and impact our team. And I, 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 I pushed uh, uh, people into areas that I thought at times would be uncomfortable for them because I really believed in them. And I think the one thing that I look back as a coach that I wish I would have done more of, because it's exactly what you have to do now, and that is if you – if you want to push a player and you want to get him into the uncomfortable part of the game that, that is the winning part, then he's got to know that you believe in him and he doesn't just think that you're being critical of him. And I think that's a really important quality to have in a coach right now. But I push players because I believed in them and I believe that they had special, uh, had the ability to have a special impact in the game right now. And, and the thing that's hard about coaching is – the players can't get to where I need them to get to as a coach without my help. And getting them through that wall is really difficult because there's going to be conflict when you're doing it. And I think looking back, um, the one thing that I, like I say, I would really have liked to sit down with some of the players and say, I did this because I've done it since then. We've had lots of good talks, a lot of guys, but I, I, I really believed in them, and so I pushed them to I, what I thought would be areas that were uncomfortable, but if they got through them, then they could be special players. When you push those guys like that, um, and, and a lot of times it's your best players, and, and you've talked about this before. You just said one, four, nine, and you said, hey, if your best players aren't on the same page as you as a coach, your chances of winning are, are pretty low. So you look back, and you had lots of different personalities in Dallas and 
and Philly and Columbus and, and then in Edmonton and Dallas again. How, how important was it like right away to create at least so you knew your best or most important players on each team were on the same page as you? Like, did you sit down with a group of four or five or was it individual? How did you get to ensure that your leaders and you were on the same page? Um, I really uh, tried to create debate. I really wanted to push debate. I, I wanted them, in order for them to have impact, uh, I wanted to have hard conversations with them so that at times they became emotional and that the buy-in became stronger. I wanted a very strong buy-in. And I, I, I always felt, as a coach, I, I, I coached four or five and I instructed 25. And I, I, the, I really worked hard with the captains. I put a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. Uh, I explained a lot of things to them, but I also demanded a lot from them. I really feel like unless your leaders are bought in, uh, you have no chance with your hockey club to progress. And to me, I, I really, uh, I was very uh, uh, communicative with the leaders, but I was also very demanding of them. And, and to me, uh, I, I felt like those guys were the special people on the team that if we were going to grow and become a championship team, their buy-in had to be 100%. And I, I really pushed for the 100% buy-in from those guys. And I tried to explain it to them as much as I could why it was so important. But I also didn't let them off the hook. If they didn't play well, I didn't let them off the hook. All of that said, Hitch, were there times and moments you think you felt like you crossed the line? I think you feel like um, – I don't know that you, you use the word cross the line. I, I think that – you know, the line has changed, by the way. I mean, yeah. just over time. Oh, I, I agree. I, I think one of the things is you, you, you're always on the on one side of the line or the other. I think it's. Uh, I think my strength was I never took it personally, Frank. I, 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 I always felt like the next day was the next day. So if I was mad at a player or a player was mad at me, I didn't. I never let it carry me. I never let it carry very far. And. I would move on very, very quickly. And, and like I said, I, I know that the hockey is an emotional sport and the bench is an emotional area, but I never carried anything. I never took it personally. I never, I never went after the players on a personal basis. I wanted it on a performance basis. But for me, if I felt a guy was capable of, of a lot um, and, and could really impact our team in a positive way, I remember some of the hard conversations I had with Manny Maholtra. And uh, I felt like Manny had a grip on our team in, in Columbus and we were stalled out. We were going nowhere. Um, and if we were going to go anywhere, Manny had to stop being an apologist and, and, and start being a leader. And we really went at it one day on the bench. And uh, we really went at it the next day. Manny changed and our team made the playoffs for the first time ever. And it was him driving the bus and he drove it. And I left him alone after that, but he drove the bus hard and he pushed guys into areas that a week before that he was an apologist for them. And he was, he went from being their, the, their friend to being their teammate. And there's a big difference between being friends and being teammates. Hmm. Interesting. Now this is the last one for me. Um, just in catching up with you, you can tell that, the passion still burns for you. Do you want to coach again? No, 
No, I don't. I look at what these guys go through and uh, I know I love talking to coaches. I love working with coaches. That's my passion. I love how, trying to help guys, but I, 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 I couldn't live it every day. I, I look at what these guys go through. I talk to these guys, especially the few guys I talk to in the NHL, and it's a hard life for these guys right now. And I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could be married 12 hours a day. I, 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 I want to be able to turn off the TV. I want to be able to turn off the computer. I want to be able to do something else. And I, I guess the best way to describe it, because Mike and I talk about it, is for the first time in our lives, we get to enjoy a second cup of coffee. And it's never been like that for a long, long time. And you feel like that it just becomes that that's a normal part of your life, Frank. And it's uh, you, you find out how stressful it is once you get away from it. And I, I feel like I'm I'm in a, the right spot right now. Uh, I love doing what I'm doing, but I, I don't think I could do it. I, I'm never going to lose my passion for coaching. I'm never going to lose my passion for instructing, for getting better you know, on, on the coaching side of things, but I just don't think I could do the grind every day. Well, that's, Ken, you've always seemed to have a pretty good grasp of, of where you were, what your strengths and weaknesses were as a coach and, and definitely as players. And I, I got one more and then we'll get to uh, to rapid fire. When you go back through, you know, all those years and, you know, Manny Maholch, it's a really good example because I think sometimes people would assume that, you know, the guy who challenges his teammates has to necessarily be the best player on the team. And that, that's not always the case. You have to find out like who, who's the pulse in the room when when you go back to specifically Dallas because you know you, you had your most success there you won a cup you lost in the Stanley Cup final was was there ever a player on that team that maybe publicly didn't get the the respect and acknowledgement of how important they were to that group well for me it was Brett Hull I I, I feel like you know Holly Holly was a cast of characters himself but man <laughs> this guy was tough and this guy would play through pain and this guy would come off the table and play. And he never got the accolades for how tough he was and how, how smart he was as a player and how, you know, he had the combative streak with everybody and he had an opinion on everything, but he had tremendous personal character that, that I saw when he was there, when we were going from conference finals to cup finals and stuff like that, I, I walked him, I watched him limp into the locker room in the morning, never leave the table, limp off the table, put his gear on and, and be one of the best players on the ice. And I, 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 he gets credited as a goal scorer, but he was much, much more than that. And he was a very, very important piece of the puzzle in Dallas there. All right, okay, Ken, we'll get to a rapid fire. Just some, uh, some quick questions. Uh, you got to answer them. So uh, here we go. What is uh, Ken Hitchcock's uh, relaxing cocktail of choice? It's dark roast coffee. Dark roast <laughs> it's the coffee. most coffee thing I can drink right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. So, Ken, uh, I've got 500 bucks. I just put it on the ground. You get to pick the club. And the distance from the fairway that you are most confident you can hit the green and be close to the pin. What's the distance and what's the club? I have a rocket three wood, which is 13 degrees loft. I swear I hit it so much. I'm going to wear out the damn face of that club. <laughs> so I can hit it. I can hit it a buck 65 and I can hit it 200. But if, if I don't have that club, cause it's, it doesn't get more than eight feet above the ground. If I don't have that club, I can't even play the game anymore. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Of all the coaches you coached against, which one did you feel made the best in-game adjustments? Uh, I would say the guy that was the toughest to coach against you couldn't beat on the beat bench was Scotty. Scotty, uh, I, I came in when Scotty was – things were rolling in Detroit and – and you could, you might fool them for one shift, but as soon as you had a, a dominant shift, the next time you played against that line, he had checking people on the ice and sh trying to shut them down. He, he never missed it. He never missed anything on the bench. He was, he was a man that was way ahead of his time on, on bench management. Speaking of bench management, how's that a skill that you learn as, as a coach? You just, you have to be behind the bench to get it. Was there any tips on bench management and, and understanding the flow of a game? I think the best coaches in the world are the ones that pull back from the emotion of the game. The, the ones that can stand there and actually feel like there's a plastic shield between them and the players. Those are the best coaches. So they remove themselves from the game emotionally and they're able to make decisions uh, because they can see all 10 players on the ice. I think a lot of times as a coach, you only see your own players. The best coaches in the world are the ones that take that one step back and, and can, can view everybody, uh, both opponent and their own players, and, and do it and make decisions that are unemotional. And those, to me, are the best coaches in the world. You can only pick one. You're on a power play. You get Zuboff or Medano. Who are you taking? Zuboff. 100%. Because he's a special player. Like He's the calmest player in the most critical ice I've ever coached in my life. Mo is a great player and a great talent. But Zuboff, Zuboff saw the ice and saw other people, made people around him better. Um, and the calmness that he had, whenever you had a power play uh, in the opposition and Zuboff was running it, it made the other team really, really nervous. Very similar to what Connor and Leon do right now. Zuboff did it, but did it from the top end. Player you coached who you think would be a great head coach? Uh I think, quite frankly, it was Rob Brown. I thought Brownie uh, had the ability, to, if he wanted to go down that path, could have been a great head coach. I think he, he, uh, he, he saw the game um, from a skill side of things. Uh, I, I thought his, his ability to read the game and his ability to understand what's taking place was incredible. I thought his feel for the game was was top shelf. And I, I really thought quite frankly, when he left that he would dip into coaching player, you coached who you had the most fun chirps back and forth with. Ah, uh, Revo. I loved Revo, but man, if, if I, if I gave it to him, I got it right back and, <laughs> and I got it back where where the bench, we, we had to almost stop play. The bench was laughing so hard. He gave it to me as good as anybody. And he, he was a, he, he's a really funny guy. And he's, he's got the quickest wit I've seen for a long, long time. And uh, lastly, Ken, so you mentioned Bowman was the best uh, in-game tactician. Was there a coach you just loved to coach against that you really wanted to beat? Uh, you know, there was a couple of guys for me, uh, uh, Daryl, Daryl and I went at it. It was like, uh, it was like the blue collar coaching gig and, and Daryl and I really went at it. You know, I, I love coaching against Daryl because your team, 
you 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 gauged your competitiveness at the end of the night every time we played, especially when he was in Los Angeles, because we had some classic playoff series. And the other one for me was, uh, he, and he's a great friend, but I love coaching against him. Was Barry Trotz. Trotz and I would chirp each other and be all over each other, and and uh, uh, but he had his team ready to play every night, and uh, you know. But for me, Daryl. Daryl gauged whether your team had a work ethic and, and could, and could make sacrifices because if he didn't, he steamrolled you. And so it was a real good gauge on whether I could prepare the players for the sacrifice ready that you needed to play that team. Hitch, it's always great to catch up with you. Your passion for the game is really unmatched by, by very few. Uh, uh, I love to hear that you're still in the game. Uh, you're enjoying golf and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the pod sometime in the future. Thanks for joining us. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me on. Ken Hitchcock, man, that guy's a legend. And honestly, Frank, when you, you talked in their intro, uh, what, fourth in all-time in wins, sixth all-time in games coach, he really should be in the Hall of Fame. He, There's no question, and he will be at some point. I just hope it's sometime soon. Yeah. Uh, and like, By the way, that, that Ryan Reeves answer, I love that. Uh, you know, quickest chirp or, or best chirp. Like, the fact that they he said they almost had to stop the game, the entire bench was laughing so hard. You know, we get... I don't think we get a full sense of just how quick Hitch can be himself oh. um, in the media. Like we don't really see that side of him. We see these, you know, detailed answers, but he's definitely like Hitch definitely has a sharp tongue. He is very well. Like, I've had so many of his former uh, players over the years, you know, they're like, Oh God, Hitch could grind you. But like, man, like he could give it, but he could also take it. Like he almost, it's such a big part of it on guys who, if he gave it to them, and they gave it back. He was just like, all right, I'm loving this. And mm -hmm. uh, like Brett Hall and him used to go at it. To, I remember Joe Newendike, who's a pretty quiet guy, telling me like, there's times on the bench, he's just like, I can't believe how they talk to each other. And like Brennan Morrow, you, I'm, you're sure you've read it. And he's talked about it, how for him, the moment he got Hitch's respect was when he finally stood up for himself and gave it back to his coach. Well, because coaches want to know how invested you are, how, how interested you are in giving it back. You know, if I played for Hitch, just listening to him, I'd be nervous if he wasn't coming at me because that's how, you know, you're not a significant part or yeah. not a key cog in the wheel because he just wasn't spending any time thinking about you or, or, or coming after you. And so, um, you know, I, I really liked and, and keyed in on the part where he said about not getting personal. It's one thing to be critical. It's one thing to be on guys and try and push them to be successful, but it's a different thing to, to be personal. And I think, you know, that's where, you know, I think coaches really get themselves into trouble sometimes. For sure. Well, uh, that's another fantastic pod uh, with uh, Hitch. We thank him for coming on. And Frank, uh, we'll talk to you on Friday and uh, we will see, man. Uh, you might have to readjust the trade bait board. The Nashville Predators are moving on up. So are yeah, the Coyotes. We're, we're going to need to do some serious surgery on that trade bait board. All right. We'll talk to you Friday. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.